Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. If you are uh, looking for ways to improve your sex life, I developed this sex quiz specifically for women. And the goal of the quiz is to help you pinpoint areas that you might be struggling with. And also I offer some recommendation and strategy on how you can uh, tackle some of those challenges. The quiz is very brief. It takes about five to seven minutes, but you will have access to the results immediately. I am very excited about our guest today. Our guest is Catherine Angel. She's an author, researcher. Her book, Tomorrow Sex Will Be Good Again, is releasing this week. And we're going to talk about her book. We're going to talk about how women can navigate some of the serious concern they have regarding sexual violence without foreclosing opportunities for their pleasure. We're going to talk about how some of the expectation we're putting on women when it comes to consent is unrealistic. So I would be curious to see what's your response to our conversation about consent. Before we jump into this interview, first I wanted to thank our sponsor, omgs.com. omgs.com is a website devoted to sexual pleasure for people with vulvas and their partners. OMGS conducts and publishes the first ever nationally representative large-scale studies about specific pleasure strategies in partnership with Indiana University and Kinsey Institute researchers. What's interesting is I first learn about them at the ASAC conference I attended, I think three years ago, and I was fascinated with this website. So what it is, it's it provides you with the sex education you never had. And I think for me, uh, one of the best way to learn about what works for other people, how can I spice things up, is around the conversation I have with my girlfriend. So, and I bet many of you guys can relate to that, that when you're talking to your friends about sex and what works for their body and with the partner and all of those fun conversations, you usually learn a lot about what you can do differently. At least I learned a lot about how, how can I change things differently. And this website is like that, like having a very funny, witty, sex positive friend that can tell you what you need to explore. It's very interesting because they have videos that they show you the techniques and they, t- they have real people talking about their experiences. So I was just like looking at the website and I said, I'm just going to refresh my memory about them and <laughs> for five minutes and an hour pass. And that's, that's what I've been doing during my lunch break. So you can check it out. They actually generously offered the discount to my listener. Their website is omgs.com slash sexology. If you want to get the discount, make sure you're following the URL we have below. And they're so generous that they're offering uh, free personal access to clinicians and certified nurses. That's how I first got access to their website. So if you are a nurse or clinician, follow the instructions in the show notes on how you can apply to get free access. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Catherine Angel. (laughs) 
Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am excited and honored to have Dr. Catherine Angel in our show. Catherine, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having me. I am very excited about this conversation. I know shortly you will release your book to the public and it talks about women's desire and nuances and struggles that many people are facing at this time. So tell us a little bit more about how you got started in writing this book. Well, it comes partly out of research I did a while back on my PhD that was partly about classifications of sexual dysfunction in the American psychiatric system. So that was the kind of deeper root of the book, but it sort of came together in the last couple of years after the Me Too movement when I was seeing these you know, really important developments happening in terms of trying to re- reiterate the importance of consent in the wake of all these, you know, abuses of power that were being revealed. And I became kind of concerned about mistakes that we might be repeating in amongst this, you know, very important reassertion of the importance of consent. So that's the kind of root of writing the book. Fascinating. So what was some of the areas that you were feeling that perhaps people were not necessarily tackling it correctly, or you saw that there would be opportunity for people to do things better? Well, one of the things I was really concerned about was the way that sometimes, and you know, not not everywhere, but in in some of the kind of popular rhetoric around consent, things I was seeing in the newspapers and hearing on the radio, some of those statements of the important of con- importance of consent seem to me to place the burden on women to say very clearly what it is that they want. So, you know, whether they want sex or what kind of sex they want, and therefore also to be able to know exactly what it is that they want. And my concern about that is that consent education is hugely important and we need to make that, you know, very clear and keep doing that work. But if we articulate consent in such a way that women have to be able to be very confident about their sexual desire and to know it in the first place, that seems to me to deny something really crucial about women's experience, which is that women get punished for confident expressions of sexual desire. And it comes back and is used as evidence against them in rape trials. We see this all the time but also that we live in a sexual culture that doesn't actually make it very easy for a lot of women to discover and explore their sexual desire. So a culture of consent that insists that these things are possible is I think one that still has some work to do in terms of speaking truthfully about women's lives. Well, uh, what an interesting observation. And I love that you highlighted that. I think even in many more conservative communities and cultures, even for women, the role of that enthusiastic yes is more complicated. You're right Mm -hmm. that we learn that modesty is a virtue, like and those called cultures for women. And uh, it would be really hard to communicate that kind of, I want this, this is what I want. And as you said, the other piece of it, knowing that what would feel good in the moment. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that also might not serve, serve the couple or individual well. So what would be the idealistic way of approaching consent? Well, first of all, I mean, I, I just want to go back to what you were saying there, because I think that's really important, is that, in fact, this emphasis on the, you know, the enthusiastic yes sayer in sex is a kind of ideal, but it's a really particular ideal, and it's one that I think is entangled with the history of um, of an approach to the problems of sexual violence 
that that makes it an individual woman's responsibility to become a certain kind of person in order to prevent sexual violence. And as you say, there are all kinds of cultural reasons or religious reasons or social reasons that make that really difficult. So it's an ideal, but if you hold women up to an ideal, you're setting them up to fail. And then who gets punished when they fail? It's women. So in answer to your question about you know how we might overcome this, I mean, I think it's very complicated and I think that, you know, consent is the absolute bare minimum and we need to keep reminding people of that and educating people about that. But you should only ever have sex with somebody who wants to have sex with you. And that is absolutely crucial. But I would like to see the focus of these conversations not rely so much on the notion of consent, which is a legal notion, which is a really important one, but it can't, it can't do our political thinking for us. And I would like the conversation to move away partly from this legal concept and to really think about the notion of bad and disappointing and painful sex for women and what the conditions are that create that. And, you know, plenty of people are doing really important work in this area, but thinking about what are the conditions that create these low expectations of pleasure for women? Why do women experience so much sexual pain? What are the norms of masculinity and femininity that are making us partly resigned to these really widespread problems. And so when it comes to kind of things like sex education, consent education is crucial, but perhaps we could also think about, you know, our ideas of vulnerability, for instance. So, or uncertainty, perhaps more importantly, you know, uncertainty is part of our lives. We don't always know in advance what we want. That shouldn't be something that gets used against us. And boys shouldn't be taught that if a woman is uncertain, that's an opportunity to push her into sex. It should be opened up as an area where you might discover something or be curious about one another's desire without it being a question of triumph or domination. So it really comes down to ideals, I think, of gender and our ideas about what it is to be a person. I agree with you. And as you were talking about uh, how this is a more of an idealistic approach, I was envisioning about how men and women are different uh, different, when it comes to exploring and discovering their sexual pleasure. In America, and many part of like most part of the world, like the time of the first sexual encounter is like either late teens or early uh, young adulthood. So here, like I see my practice, teens around 15, 16, 17 is the, the age that they start exploring with the partner sex. And at that age, many boys are, they're, they're, they know their body, they masturbate it, they feel okay about it. But for many women and this young women and teen years, some of them, they masturbate it, some they feel uncomfortable about it. So as you said, that they don't even know what they like and how mm. how would that enthusiastic yes would look like for them we're not saying as you said the idea is not to force them that uh, kind of think about oh god they will like it but i think it's more about empowering people to kind of like think about what w- would work for for them so i think that's that's impo- important because i feel it takes a while for many women
men to kind of feel confident and stepping into their sexuality. So I think like from from that young age, there are not that many women that are they know what they like and they're able to express themselves clearly with the partner. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the possibility of that exploration and discovering what you want is so dependent on, you know, the relationships you're in, on the culture that you're in and what you see around you. And women's sexual pleasure and the sexual pleasure of girls is something that we are often very frightened of, I think. And it isn't represented to us in enough ways. I think that one of the reasons perhaps that consent actually has been the place where we try to think about how to resolve sexual violence, I think is partly because we're very frightened of talking about sexual pleasure. And most, you know, as you know, sex education is so patchily available over the world. It's, you know, woefully inadequate so much of the time. And sex education very rarely talks about female pleasure. And I think that, you know, sex education should be starting very young and people get very nervous about talking about pleasure to children because they're anxious that it will expose them to to danger. And of course, you know, those dangers are there and children need to be protected. But I think one of the problems is that girls grow up not thinking that they're entitled to pleasure. So they can't discover what they might enjoy. And they don't expect sex necessarily to be pleasurable. And if you combine that with a culture in which boys are taught that they have the right to sex and the right to women's bodies, that's an incredibly toxic combination. Absolutely. And as you were talking about challenges that women experiencing, I was thinking about my clients and the couples that I see in my practice. Because of uh, my listeners, they know I'm coming from a Middle Eastern background. I see a diverse group of couples and individuals in my practice. And it's, I don't think it's a surprise that I see a higher number of women who are struggling with painful intercourse, that they're coming more from more of a conservative background, right? I feel like for some of these people, that that's their body way of setting boundary that I want, I don't want this kind of sexual experiences. Mm. So I think there is a huge cultural element to it, as you mentioned. Yeah. And I think you put that so well, you know, it pain can be a way for the body to set boundaries. That's exactly right. Sexual pain is, is a really pervasive problem for women um, and various kind of pain, pain disorders. And some of that will be the legacy of sexual trauma. And that's, that's a whole other thing that, you know, the, the, the pressure on women to be these confident sexual subjects who can be clear about what they want so that men don't misunderstand them. Well, a lot of women are walking around in the world with the pain, the psychological and physical pain that is the expression of sexual trauma. So again, that's unrealistic. And, and I think it's exactly as you say, you know, women are taught from so early on that their bodies are not their own, that they, they can be violated, that their boundaries can be violated, and that that's just what men are entitled to do. And so sometimes women find ways to preserve those boundaries. And that, you know, that's what I find so fraught and, and painful in the whole, this whole arena is that, of course, we erect boundaries around ourselves to feel safe. But that also means we can't feel pleasure. And in the book, I quote Chanel Miller, who wrote this beautiful book called Know My Name. I think I may have got that wrong. And Call me Chanel. by my name, is it? Um, know my name, know my name. You're right. You were right. Know yes. my name, I think. It's probably yes. on the bookshelf. Oh, I, I love um, that book. Yes. It's so beautiful. And she talks so movingly. So she was the woman who... Um, Brock Turner sexually assaulted and, you know, this really harrowing case. 
And she wrote this extraordinary autobiography about it. And in it, she she talks about how she turned, she says she turned to wood because trying to protect herself from assault and also, of course, being exposed globally with this whole court case, she had to protect herself, but it stopped her being able to feel pleasure. And that's the terrible bind that women are put in. If you're, if you're constantly having to protect yourself from risk and violence, you also can't feel pleasure. And so I, what I want, you know, in my, in my ideal world is if women could be able to experience vulnerability without being at risk, because vulnerability is also what makes sex wonderful if we are not being abused or coerced. Absolutely. And I, and I love that you used her autobiography and, and the book and because it was such a powerful story and resonated with, mm. with many women. And again, doesn't need that you, women, they don't necessarily need to experience sexual assault in the way that she did to be able to connect. Many women, they feel kind of with the, even cat catcalling, all of those negative messages that they get early on in the society mm. that impacts their ability to be vulnerable because the idea, the narrative, in the society is that if you're experiencing this, if, if someone making these statements, the question, the next question, what you were wearing, were you in the right place? So mm-hmm. uh, it's really kind of, it's really automatic for many people to go to those places when when a woman kind of experience can become a victim of mm-hmm. these statements. So it impacts a woman's ability to be vulnerable. So how can we cultivate that? As an adult, if this is this has been our experiences, whether we had big T trauma or little T trauma, but now we want to relate differently with our sexuality. What are some of the suggestions you have for us? Well, I think, you know, people like you are in a way better place to answer that question because you deal clinically with this stuff, you know, in your in your everyday practice. But I suppose my my instinct is that in a sense, we need to answer these questions, well, or we need to avoid always answering these questions at an individual level. Obviously, individually, we want to help individual women to experience pleasure and to, you know, overcome trauma. But it seems to me really important to keep remembering to look at the social, you know, to look at the conditions that create these situations in the first place, and to look at our language around these things, and to really try to emphasize that sexuality is always lived in context. So we can't extract our kind of essential sexuality as something separate from the bodies we live in and the cultures we live in and the relationships we have. And for so many women, sex is difficult because they experience sexual violence, they experience domestic violence, they do all the housework, they're responsible for the burden of caring for young and old people in their families. You know, they're vulnerable to hostile immigration policies, they're socioeconomically vulnerable, they're the victims that, you know, in much more disproportionate way of things like austerity policies in the UK. You know, the conditions of women's lives are really not conducive to the kind of you know, sitting sitting back and sort of letting go that sex requires. So there's part of me that always wants to look at those conditions and say, this is where as a society we need to really be focusing. And of course, individually then as well, you want to you want to help women be in situations where they can taste some of that abandon and release that are are necessary for sexual pleasure. And so that involves thinking at a relationship level, you know, is, are your sexual partners, are they able to explore with you? Are they 
going to get outraged and angry if you don't want to have sex that night? Are they able to explore your desires with you, but not freak out if you change your mind? Because all of those things make such a difference to whether women are able to, you know, let go and reach orgasm or even imagine undressing in front of somebody and being vulnerable in that way. So I think it's really important to think both at the kind of political and big social level, and then how that plays out individually in people's sort of intimate relationships. I agree with you. That's something that we need to tackle in multiple layers. And I think the other component of helping women with that is like sharing our stories, whether, as you said, like it's writing a book or talking about it in circle. Mm -hmm. There was this new social media app, Clubhouse. I don't know if, if you're on Clubhouse, but we were running a room and we were talking about kind of like factors that influence it was on desire, women's desire. And someone started talking about tactfully and mindfully without triggering other people about the the kind of like the violation she experienced on regular basis during dates and how it was impacting her desire. And that created this ripple effect of other women sharing and coming becoming coming forward with these experiences. So I think even talking about our experiences and voicing our experiences mm -hmm. can be empowering to others. Yeah, absolutely. And feeling you know, feeling validated that if you have difficulties with sex, it's it's nothing to feel that you that you have blame for or ashamed of. I mean, of course, people feel shame and they feel that they've failed, and you know, it can be very very painful. I think experiencing difficulties around sex, but it's also very widespread. I think. I mean, you must know this from your work and. You know, the research suggests that the majority of women have difficulties with sex. And I think all of those difficulties need to be treated with compassion. And, and you know, it's I'm not interested really in medical diagnoses and classifications of these things. I mean, I'm interested in it to the extent that it tells us something about the culture that we're in, but and also because it does matter in terms of getting access to medical treatment sometimes or, you know, insurance cover for therapy. So it's not irrelevant, but I think, you know, sex is such an important part of people's lives. And when it goes wrong, it's incredibly painful and there needs to be more support for women, you know, whether it's kind of medical support or psychological therapy that should be widespread and free. And, you know, it's, it's so important to not feel alone in these things, I think. Absolutely. And I think you brought up such an important point with kind of low sexual desire in women and how it's more number of different things that's impacted it. And sometimes I have women in my practice and they say like, you know, I don't experience sexual desire, but I haven't necessarily experienced major trauma. But then as we're unfolding different uh, stories, different uh, themes in her life, then we can see that, of course, when you're experiencing these things that impact your kind of how much you're connected with your sexual desire and wanting to have sex. So I think even having that information and kind of like having access to to kind of like naming those experiences also are, is, is very important. Mm, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's. It's interesting um, what's happened in the last 20 years or so around thinking about sexual desire in women. And in the book, I talk about 
you know, this model of responsive desire that Rosemary Basson especially has kind of put forward. And I find it very interesting. And in the book, you know, I, I kind of wrestle with it because I have quite mixed feelings about it. So, you know, the, the theory being that um, in women especially, desire is something that um, responds to context. And in fact, most experiences of desire are experiences of arousal in context. So instead of a model where you just have kind of spontaneous desire that lives inside you and it just appears and then you get aroused and then eventually you reach orgasm, she suggests that um, for lots of women, it's a much more circular experience and that often women don't have that you know, burning desire to have sex, but they might sort of be interested in it and they can become aroused, you know, if they're approached in the right way by their partner, if the conditions feel right, if they feel safe and, you know, and they, you know, they want to kind of be intimate with their partner, they can become aroused and then desire emerges from that. And I think it's a really interesting model, but it's one that also makes me a bit nervous because in certain like popular renditions of it, it draws this contrast between men as the ones who have, you know, deep biological desire that must be satisfied, otherwise they get dangerous. And women, on the other hand, as being more sort of cognitive about their sexual desire, that they might weigh up their interests and they might think, oh, well, I want intimacy and it's important for me in this relationship. So yeah, yeah, okay, I'll go along with it. And then and then their desire might build. And that's, it's very fraught, I think, because, you know, lots of scholars have argued that this is a form of thinking in which women have to do the work of maintaining heterosexual relationships and that they sometimes have to go against their inclinations in order to sort of satisfy a man and keep the, keep the kind of economy of the relationship going. And that is something that, I, that I'm concerned about in that model. But I think what's really key is Rosemary Basson's recognition that desire is relational. We desire in relation to other people and we respond to the context that we live in. And the fact is that men and women live in very different worlds when it comes to sex. So women respond to the context in which they live. That context is one where sexual violence is pervasive, where they're constantly reminded of the threat of sexual violence and where they're blamed when it happens. That's very different than the situation for heterosexual men, at least, where they grow up largely having their sexual interest affirmed in the culture. It's all around them and they're not made to feel shame in the same way about sexual desire. So I think the model of kind of responsive relational desire is really useful if we're careful not to see it as a kind of biological essential truth about men as kind of lustful animals and women as the kind of gatekeepers of the relationship. Well, I'm glad that you brought up that point and that's something that you highlighted in your book because to me, it feels like, yes, it resonates with some women that I work with, but what a burden, as you mentioned, it puts on women to kind of thinking about if desire is not there, I'm going to engage with my partner. And I think the other piece of it is kind of saying no, that saying that like, no, the desire didn't show up and then we're not moving forward. And the level of agency that 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 the woman has to kind of exercise that in that moment 
of like you're engaging with your partner and then you're saying the desire didn't show up, we're not doing this. Because I feel mm-hmm. that can position women in the places more times to go with the activity and have the sex that they don't want to have uh, versus mm-hmm. kind of empowering them to to be able to access more desire. And I can see value of it, but also I can see the conflict there. Mm. Yeah, it's very fraught, isn't it? Because in, in lots of sex manuals, there is kind of this idea of, um, you know, that sometimes you don't always want sex, but that, that it might be good to be open to it. And I think, you know, sometimes that can be true. We can, we can want to have, we can want to want to have sex, even if we don't feel it right then. And there can be something kind of quite beautiful about being open to an experience and then it, it building. And, you know, if you, if you feel loving and well disposed to your partner, then that can be a good thing. But as you say, again, it places a bit the burden on women to override their own feelings mm-hmm. and to be the ones, yeah, responsible for keeping sexuality alive in the relationship. Whereas, you know, the responsibility for a sexual life is a shared responsibility. And if a woman really isn't feeling interested in sex, there might be other things going on that they, the couple or, you know, the group needs to address collectively rather than, again, you know, women being the place where as a culture, we put all the burden of resolving ethical and political problems. You're right. And I feel at times it's prematurely labeling the person that this is how who you are, and then not necessarily looking at all of these other factors and elements that might impact someone not having access to their true eroticism. So I think that's, that's also is very important, as, as you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Well, I know we're toward the end of the time, but you have this fabulous book that you are releasing soon. So tell us more about that. So it's called Tomorrow Sex Will Be Good Again, which is a kind of, you know, playful title where I'm kind of playing, I suppose, with the idea of, you know, our hope for the future, especially in the wake of Me Too, this this feeling that, you know, perhaps something might be able to change, that we're really thinking about these abuses in kind of public and private life. And the book in a way is my kind of trying to weigh up whether there are grounds for optimism or not. And so I try to articulate a critique of consent that that takes consent, you know, very seriously, but tries to show some of the pitfalls in the way in which we're thinking about it that I that I think don't end up serving women well. So I want I want us to really take seriously the difficulties for women in saying what they want and knowing what they want and using those difficulties as a place to start from instead of as a place where we just say, oh, it's too complicated. Therefore, women just need to kind of deal with it. I want to say it's complicated. You know, we don't have full self-knowledge. The culture is stacked against our sexual pleasure. So then how do we try and articulate a sexual ethics that can that can work with that as opposed to hoping, you know, just wishing it away? So the book moves through debates about consent and then aspects of desire, theories of desire, and then studies into arousal. And it talks also about vulnerability and exploration. And so it does it through a range of scientific research, sexological research, but also popular culture. And I talk about films and novels and TV programs. And so I try to kind of paint a picture of where I think we are and how I think it could be better. (laughs) I love that. And I love that you opened the door and window to another way of looking at this topic. And I feel like finally many women are feeling that they had there is room for them to to say no and also like we made lots of good progress 
progressed toward advocating for consent. But you're right that there's mm-hmm. a different aspect to it that's important to for us as a society to collectively look at it. So tell us where can people find you and the book? So you can find me on Twitter. My handle on Twitter is K Engels, but I think if you just search Catherine Angel, I, I come up. And I teach at the in the University of London at Birkbeck College. So I have a website there. It's not totally up to date, but <laughs> I'm working on it. So you can find me there. And the book is on sale through the Verso website, Verso Publishers, who published the book. So it should be fairly findable, I think, I hope. <laughs> Excellent. So I leave a link in the show notes. And uh, if people get a chance to write the name of the book, they will can, they can access it in the show notes. Thank you so much for writing the book. And thank you so much for coming on this show. Thanks so much for your brilliant questions. I hope you found our conversation useful. I highly encourage you to get Catherine's book. And if you are a woman that you feel like you want to have a different relationship with your sexual desire, I encourage you to journal about what are some of the inhibitors that gets in the way of you having the sexual experiences that you want to have. And of course, our male clients are welcome to do that as well. But I think it would be interesting to see what are some of the things that that you feel like it's been specifically, it would be interesting to think about what are some of the messages around sex that was passed on to you and perhaps exploring how you can change that. Again, at the end, I wanted to encourage you to Also, check out our sponsored website, omgs.com. And let me know if you end up getting the subscription, which one of the videos that you liked more. I've been loving, they're talking about this technique called there's champagne in the lobby. It's fascinating. So if you end up getting a subscription, please shoot me an email and let me know which one of those skills and strategies you, you have enjoyed more. All right, I'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.